0: And to that we say, Amen. Well, remain standing and let's take our Bibles out. This morning we're going to turn to Mark chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 7 through 19 this morning, if you're looking in your bulletin, and I think I have this one right. I didn't do so well with that song, but um, it says that we're going to read through verse 21. We're only going to read through verse 19, and in our sermon this morning, we're going to look at verses 7 through 19. We'll leave verses 20 and 21 for uh, next Sunday and pick those up then. So let's read verses 7 through 19, Mark chapter 3, and let us give heed to this, for this is God's A word spoken to us, given to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Mark writes, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you again have brought us to this place that you have brought us to this time when we can open your word and hear from it, to hear you speak to us. We pray, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning, and we pray that you would bless the hearing of your word this morning. Would you encourage us? Would you instruct us? Would you uh, confront us, Lord? We pray that your spirit working through your word in each of our hearts would Work in each of us exactly what you have for us this morning through these, these words. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So if you remember from last week... And I hope that you do. Jesus has continued to minister up in that northern area there of the, the Sea of Galilee and in the region around there, preaching. He's been healing people, he's been casting out demons. We've seen that he has been forgiving sin. And, and he's also been instructing the religious authorities, sort of indirectly, the scribes and the Pharisees, that he, Jesus, as the the Son of God, as the Son of Man, had authority not only to forgive sins, but also to call into question, uh, even to flatly disregard the human-devised laws that were so much a part of the, the Pharisees' view of religion. Those laws that the Pharisees had taken upon themselves to add to God's own law in regard most recently to the observance of the Sabbath day. And as a result of the way Jesus sort of uh, flouted their their authority and focused upon God's purpose for the Sabbath day, he as the Lord of the Sabbath uh, did good on the Sabbath day and challenged the, the scribes and the Pharisees in regard to that because they would have had him not do good on the sabbath because it was the sabbath. And Jesus reminded them, saying the sabbath was made for man, not man for the sabbath, and that he, the Lord, the Son of man, is Lord even of the sabbath. And as a result of that confrontation that we looked at last week, we read in Mark's inspired record here of a, a rising tide of official distrust and outright criticism of Jesus. And so we had seen that, that this increase of the religious leaders disputing Jesus' authority um, was, was growing. And at the very end of what we looked at last week, that distrust had ridden, risen to a crescendo when the Pharisees went out. And we saw it there, and you can see it there in verse 6, that they went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against, against him, how to destroy him. They went out to conspire together with an unlikely group, as we talked about last week, about how to rid themselves of Jesus, the beginning of of this this threat against Jesus' life that that obviously uh, will continue and will rise. But as is the case throughout Jesus' ministry, up until... Well, really, up until the the very last day, the opinion of the people is quite different than that of the Pharisees and the the scribes. The people see Jesus as, as wise, as amazing, as authoritative in his teaching and in his actions. They see him as someone who is willing to heal people who is willing to, to heal sickness. He's willing to deal and able to deal with unclean spirits. In fact, Jesus has become so popular so quickly that, that the crowds are becoming so large that Jesus, at several points already in what we've seen, has had to sort of retreat a little bit to withdraw um, in order to have a moment to pray or to be with his disciples. Now, the crowds, of course, they don't have Jesus evaluated correctly either. They, as we've seen, see him very much as just a miracle worker, as a healer, as a a caster out of unclean spirits. But at least they're not wanting to kill him. They're wanting to come to him. And we're going to see here how how the crowd and Jesus' reputation, or we do see here how the crowd and Jesus' reputation among the crowd is growing. And in this passage here that begins in verse 7, and it's going to run down through verse 19, actually it's going to run down through the end of chapter 3, taken all together, we see Jesus and the relationship that he In which he stands to these various groups and individuals in this area and beyond. And so in these verses, uh, also Mark is going to wrap up this opening description of the ministry of Jesus. And then when he gets into chapter 4, he's going to start or we are going to be introduced to some of the teachings of Jesus. Up until this point, uh, the only thing we've heard about Jesus teaching is that he's teaching concerning the kingdom. He's teaching concerning the gospel of God. When we get into chapter 4, we'll actually see him begin to teach. So as we begin this morning, we're going to see this, something of this contrast between uh, the, the, the groups that Jesus is encountering. And we're going to look at Jesus and the people. We'll look at Jesus and the demons. And we'll look at Jesus and the apostles this morning. And as I said, we'll leave his relationship with his family until next week as it stretches on a little bit further. So, first, Jesus and his people. As I mentioned, Jesus here at the beginning of our passage in verse 7, it says that he withdrew with his disciples to the sea. He retreats a little bit from the crowd to to rest and to pray and uh, here in verse 7 we see that. We've seen it in the past. We see it again. Verse 7 says Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, a place that he's been before. And just as we've seen before, uh, we see it back in chapter 1 in verse 13, for example, this happens that even as Jesus withdraws, even as he attempts to to take a little a little downtime, as it were. The crowds follow him. And Mark fills in some of the detail here at the beginning of, of this passage in regard to these crowds. And we see by Mark's description here just how far, just how wide this news about Jesus and his teaching and especially his healing ministry is reaching. Uh, Look at verses 7 and 8. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. That gives us a a big picture from Galilee, he says. Of course, that's the region there in the north part of Israel where everything we've been looking at so far uh, has taken place. He says, And Judea and Jerusalem. That's down in the southern part of the nation of Israel. Judea is the region. Jerusalem is in that region. So we're seeing that southern part. And people are coming, Mark says, even from south of that, down into this area that he calls Idumea. And Idumea was a region down, down in the very south. Um, actually, it was politically Part of, of Israel, but it was a, a portion of the, the area that was uh, lived in, that was uh, populated by the Edomians. And Edomia is, a, is the Greek way of speaking of the Edomites. You remember the Edomites from the Old Testament. And during the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Edomites had been conquered and had been forced to accept Judaism. And so that's where they live, and even they are coming. Next, Mark says that people were coming from from beyond the Jordan, that is east of the Jordan River. And then he says, and from around Tyre and Sidon. That's in the other direction. That's up in the uh, the northwest, along the Mediterranean coast up there. And that was considered Gentile territory, although there were many Jews who lived there. So a pretty vast area is represented from all of these, uh, and, and the word about this teacher from Nazareth, Jesus, is spreading and drawing people from all of these areas. And As we've seen in the past, the, the main thing that was drawing these crowds, both locally and from these distances... Was especially his working of miracles. We've seen, we've been reminded that Jesus' teaching, or his emphasis, was always on his teaching. Uh, But the people were drawn by the healings, were drawn by the casting out of the demons. The people remember the miracles. And to the degree that that was the case, the crowds, as I said, were missing the point of Jesus' mission. Of his, of his identification, of his, of his teaching. But I, we do need to sort of be fair to these crowds that are coming and say that it is not altogether inappropriate that they were drawn to Jesus' activities. And by being drawn to it, of course, they were being then exposed to the teaching that Jesus was doing. Um, Jesus' healing was, was addressing A need, it was addressing an important need in the people's lives. uh, Where they lived, with what they needed. Not all, not even the most important things that they needed, but some of the things that they needed, the physical things that they uh, had need of. And so his healing ministry was a decidedly good thing. But it's easy for us to get ourselves all out of whack with this to miss the forest for the trees to get so focused on one aspect of Jesus ministry and usually it's the the physical one the visible one just like it was for them many people miss the forest for the trees or we might say miss the savior for the signs and people get drawn to the signs they follow the signs they come to see the signs and they miss what the signs are pointing to and so many do that today and we should take take a warning for ourselves as well let us not see Christ and not be tempted to see Christ as merely a remedy for our felt needs not merely a solution for our family problems or our financial issues or our physical ailments. Those are not unimportant to Jesus, but the point of Jesus coming, the reason for his coming, is to deal with our sins. Let's not be... I'm going to date myself here again. Let's not be like the dead heads you're familiar with them who followed the Grateful Dead rock group and followed them all over the country uh, to see the shows. Let us not be those who follow the show. And that's what many of these were doing, who were coming to see Jesus, people who chased the signs but very often ended up missing the Savior in doing so. And it's really put in bold relief here uh, emphasized as, as the people press into Christ looking for a miracle worker, that, that at the end of verse 10, he says that all who had diseases pressed around him. Literally, it says there that they fell on him to touch him. People had probably seen Jesus heal people by, by laying a hand on them. And so they figured that if they are healed when he touches them, well, maybe then if we are able to just touch Jesus, we'll be healed. And so Mark gives us a description here of a kind of mob of people just crowding in, trying to get to Jesus and to touch him. But Jesus is not just a good luck charm he's not a a rabbit's foot not some kind of charged healing generator where just touching him would automatically confer healing now i know some of you are thinking well what about the woman with the issue of blood who did exactly that and was healed to which i say exactly she is the exception that proves the rule that day remember that as this one here a throng of people were surrounding Jesus. Many were touching him, but only she was healed. She was healed when she touched him, but she wasn't healed because she touched him. She was healed because it was God's will to heal her and not the multitude of others. In fact, when Jesus said, who touched me, his his disciples said, what are you talking about? Everybody's touching you. But there was that particular one that it was God's will to heal through that. It was not his will to heal others that way, but it was her. And it's not his will to heal necessarily here. We don't hear necessarily that people are being healed at this time. Though some certainly were. Sometimes Jesus does, in the record, heal people by them just touching him, as that woman said, and Mark 6.56, we'll see that instance. Other times it's not God's will to heal that way. Like I said, we have no record of it working that way here. We do read in verse 10 that he had healed many in the past, but that's just the reason that they're all now coming to Jesus. And so they press in on Jesus so much so, Mark tells us, in a, a wonderful little picture of the, the humanity of Jesus, of the, oh, how do I want to say this, the, the unspeakable spiritualized nature of Jesus. I'll explain that here. Look at verse 9. It says that he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush him. See, it's interesting that Jesus, God in the flesh, took natural precautions. He told the disciples, this is a big crowd, this is a mob, let's have an escape route ready. Have a boat ready in case I need to to keep from getting crushed," he said. "It's a very uh, natural precaution. it's a sensible preparation, and even God in the flesh is concerned about those things and works in that way. But as always, Jesus did not send the people away. That would have been another thing he could have done, but he didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. He ministered to people. He met their needs. And these verses here serve as a kind of summary for the situation between the people and Jesus. And again, it's a contrast to the growing animosity that has been coming from the religious leaders. It's important that this comes off of that statement in verse 6 that the Pharisees had gone out and taken counsel with the Herodians against Jesus about how to destroy him. How does Jesus respond to that? Well, he goes to the sea where he knows there will be a great crowd and he ministers to them. That's how things are between Jesus and the people. He cares for them. He ministers to them. He heals their diseases. He casts out demons. So next, briefly, we see how things were between Jesus and the demons. They're in verse 11. It says, whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. If you remember, one of the first miracles that we read about in our journey through Mark's gospel was Jesus casting an unclean spirit out of a man. And it was very similar to what we really see on a kind of regular practice uh, in the ministry of Jesus that that this happens we'll see uh, another time in in a few chapters where the same thing happens again where Jesus has a confrontation or or a, or a meeting with one of these unclean spirits but mark tells us here in verse 11 that whenever the unclean spirits saw him that first they recognize him immediately Secondly, they immediately assume a position of obeisance, of of worship. It says here that they fell down before him. And they proclaim out loud the recognition of who he is. And throughout the Gospel of Mark, this happens three times in the Gospel of Mark, and each time there's a little slight difference in how they how they proclaim who Jesus is back in chapter 1, verse 6, the first time we saw that, he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And in chapter 5, we'll get to that in a little while, uh, he says, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, and here he just says, you are the Son of God. You know, Paul wrote to the Philippians that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, that includes the demons, and that includes now as we see him confronting them and coming into contact with them. And Mark says that whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they always reacted the same way. Now, in this passage that we're looking at, Mark doesn't specifically mentioned jesus casting out these demons from people but we've seen it before in mark's gospel and that's the the uh, the way that it happens when jesus has these these confrontations with the 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 demons in fact chapter 1 verse 39 said that he went throughout all galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons it's part of what jesus did and he deals with these unclean spirits, both here and in the other places, whenever he meets up with them. This is wonderful to, to, to point us to who Jesus is. It's wonderful that he always deals with these unclean spirits without some big ritual. Of course, without magic without some kind of, of mantra or repeated phrase or some formula or anything like that, without any of what we see in the Old Testament, what we see in, um, outside of Christianity, where we see these uh, so-called exorcists throughout history that have all of these complicated things that they go through, Jesus deals with them with a simple, authoritative command. When he sees them, he says, come out. And they do. And in verse 12, as part of that, we, we come across this, again, consistent instruction of Jesus to those spirits that he casts out of people. He says in verse 12 that he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And that continues to baffle people. We talked about it, I think, a few weeks ago. We talked about why does he do this? Remember, though, that he also gives this command to many of the people that he heals. He already has in this book. The leper in chapter 1, he told him, don't go telling people about this. Go to the priest and do what, the, what is required in the law. But why does Jesus say this to these demons? And he says it many times, several times. Well, he does it because that full orbed revelation that that these demons are actually giving. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. You are the Son of the Most High God. You are the Son of God. That full revelation of the nature of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is not ready yet to be fully revealed because the people are not yet ready to hear it. It is not that time. In God's timetable, that revelation will come later. But it's not now. And it would be, as one commentator put it, to to blow Jesus' cover before he is ready to reveal himself in that way. But for now, it says that he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 34 said that he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. But it's very clear in the Gospels that the demons are subject to and know that they are subject to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Even though they hate Jesus, they recognize Jesus. They must worship Jesus. They must obey Jesus. And if that's true, how much more for those of us who love Jesus that we should recognize him and worship him and obey him. Another reason that could be that Jesus does this and orders them not to make him known is do you really want an unclean spirit as one of your proponents? Um, Do you want someone, do you want to enlist someone as a spokesman who is recognized as evil? It's sort of in our world today, it would be the same way that you wouldn't want someone from the KKK to endorse your political campaign. Um, It's the same type of thing here. The demons know who he, he is, but it's probably not the best thing to have a demon going around saying who you are. So he commands them not to make him known. Well, that brings us then to the final section for today, and that is Jesus and the apostles. And as we come to this, we are coming to a a really a critical juncture in the ministry of Jesus. It was and is the will and the wisdom of God in, in his great knowledge, again, his great wisdom, to include men in the work of his kingdom and in the building of Christ's church. And perhaps nowhere is that seen so evidently than in Jesus' calling And setting apart for this particular service 12 men who are known to us as the apostles or the 12 apostles or simply the 12. Now, one of the most interesting things is that the men themselves are not a critical part of this. There was nothing special about any of these men. Nothing especially qualifying about them. The fact is, in fact, really the part of the glory of God and of Christ that is demonstrated is in the fact that he calls such nondescript ordinary men. It shows God's condescending grace, just as in the Old Testament, And we think of of Abraham and of Moses and of David as these great figures in biblical history. And they were, but they weren't when they were called. They were a shepherd. They were a pagan. And God called them. But what's more important than than the men themselves in this record here is, is the number. We don't think of that necessarily, that it is the twelve as opposed to the ten or the five or the fifteen. Twelve, not eleven, not thirteen, twelve. And why is that? Well, of course, as Jesus chooses twelve men who will be the foundation of the church in the New Testament... With Jesus himself as the cornerstone, there is here at this point in the history of God's working a, a clear connection with those who were the foundations of the church in the Old Testament. The twelve tribes of Israel. A clear, there's a clear and, and purposeful parallel between the twelve apostles and the twelve tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob. Because what Jesus is doing here with these twelve that he appoints is that he is reconstituting the people of God for the new covenant era. And he, he shows that connection, he cements that together uh, in our minds by appointing twelve, just as there were the twelve tribes in the Old Testament. And that's a connection that is, that is given an eternal frame of reference in John's vision of heaven in the book of Revelation where he looks and he sees on the gates of the city there are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel and on the foundation of the walls there are the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb representing the church. And it's it's critical, of course, to make another point here and that is that the calling of these twelve men is an expression of once again, of the sovereignty of God. A reminder that God is the one who's in charge of all of this. All that is going on. That these aren't chance happenings. That Jesus is the one who is moving this all along. It is the sovereign choice of Christ that is taking place here. Verse 13 says that he having gone up on the mountain, and by the way, Luke 6, 12 adds that Jesus, before he does this, he spends the night in prayer, that he comes and he called to him those he desired. I was reading this, it kind of stood out to me also that that the point is that he desired these men. He didn't need these men. But he had chosen them. He wanted to use them. His sovereignty, again, in the choice of these men. He called to him those whom he desired, whom he desired to have hold these positions. In verse 14, it says that he appointed 12. Literally, it says he made 12. Verse 14 speaks of whom he also named apostles. And verse 16, again, says he appointed the 12. Once again, we see the sovereignty of God. And once again, we also see the mystery of the incarnation of Christ as He he goes the night before up on the mountain and He prays, as Luke records for us. We see in the the incarnation of Christ the, the human nature, the divine nature in one person. We see in His understanding of the need for prayer. As Luke tells us, his his reliance on the Father, his need of, of communion with the Father, and the equipping of the Spirit. We see that, and on the other hand, we see his sovereign choice at every step in, in this decision. He is the one in charge of those who are to be called. He'll remind them of that a little later in another book in John's Gospel. He said to the twelve, you did not choose me, I chose you. So out of all of the disciples, remember we've talked about the disciples are the followers. Out of all of the disciples who have followed Jesus up to this point, now Jesus chooses twelve. Verse 14 says, whom he also named apostles. Now remember that, we've said it before, that all apostles are disciples but not all disciples become apostles. A disciple is a follower. A disciple is a learner. You and I are disciples. The, the crowds, many of them that followed Jesus, were disciples. But an apostle is something altogether different. The word apostle comes, comes directly out of, of a, the Greek, from the Greek word apostolos. And it's a formal term that means an emissary, an envoy, one who is sent out from another with the authority given by the one who sends them. And Jesus chooses 12 of them. And they make up a most unique group. Again, 12. Only 12. Later in the beginning of the book of Acts, we'll see that there's one replacement for one of the 12 And we will see that there is one special case, the Apostle Paul, who as in Paul's own words was one born out of season, the apostle to the Gentiles. But that's all. There is no mention of a mechanism for apostolic succession, no successors, no new apostles, no possibility of successors. The special office of apostle was for that time in the history of the church of Christ to lay, to be the foundation for it, for the church that continues up to this very day that we are a part of. And this extraordinary office after the close of the canon has now been replaced by an ordinary office the ordinary office of pastor. And pastors function in some of the same ways, but pastors are not apostles. The apostles were with Jesus. They had to be. They they saw the risen Lord. That was one of the qualifications. They were appointed explicitly and directly by Jesus, as we're seeing this morning. They were given authority that no pastor has been given. They spoke Scripture. They wrote Scripture, some of them. They were for that time, and their purpose was fulfilled in that time. There are some today who claim the office of apostle. And men who claim the office of apostle today are either... Hugely deficient in their understanding of the scripture or they are simply liars and deceivers and heretics because the office of apostle was a unique office. It was a foundational office in the church. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul is talking about the church there uh, as the household of God. And he goes on and he says, built, he says, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And these 12 men, these 12 apostles, called by Christ, made by Christ, appointed by Christ, they are also given by Christ a twofold calling which is the calling of the apostles. One, we'll see, is to be with Christ. The second is to be sent from Christ. As Mark tells us here, look at verse 14. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. See, they are selected, first of all, so that they could be with Jesus, that they might be with him. And I'll tell you, the the significance of that aspect of being called by Christ cannot be overemphasized. The apostles were first called to be with Christ, to be the, the constant companions of Christ, to be learners of Christ in a special way, to be with him all the time. During his his earthly ministry, the constant receivers of his teaching, of his direction, of his example, they watched him, they heard him, they talked to him, they discussed things. He taught them. And these men, these 12 men were to be the future of Christ's church after he was gone back into heaven. It's amazing to think about that. As we sit here today, 2,000 years after, that the church began, of course, the church began, the church began in eternity, in the mind of God and in the planning of God. But here in this time that we're looking at, it began with one man, one God-man, and with his appointment of 12. And through their being with him, They were being equipped, once Jesus was taken back into heaven, they were being equipped to take the torch of the light of the gospel. And these 12 men would be, as Jesus himself said at the beginning of the book of Acts, they would be Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth. And we today are the beneficiaries of Jesus' choice of these 12 men and his working through these 12 men. For three and a half years, they followed Jesus. They watched his every step. They saw what they were to be called to bear witness to. They listened. They asked questions. Now, we might note by way of application that we, in a way, we are called to this as well. We are called to be with him. To spend time with him. That is the... the classroom of our faith to be with Christ to spend time with Jesus in his word through the scriptures through the teaching of the Bible we beloved are with him as we learn of him in our salvation we are united to Christ we are with him we are made to be with him in the closest possible way The Bible even speaks of us being one with him by being baptized into him. His spirit indwells us and is active at every moment conforming us into the image of Christ. Making us like him and so through the indwelling of the spirit of Christ we are with him. We are ever and always beloved in the classroom of Christ as were the apostles, in a special way. And not only were they called so that they might be with him, but also it says that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So now we see their mission. To be with Christ and to be sent by Christ, to be sent from Christ to be witnesses of Christ. And just as Jesus' primary work, as we've seen, was to preach in his ministry, and from the very beginning, that is what he did. Mark 1.14 said he came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Just as he did, that was the calling of the apostles, that he might send them out to preach, to proclaim, literally, the word means to proclaim the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God, even as Christ has done that. By the way, good news, not of what you can do, not of what you can be, not of you living your best life now, but proclaiming what God has done through Christ. That's what they proclaimed. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God through the grace of God and the blood of Christ. That's the message of the apostles. That's the teaching of the apostles. That is what we call the apostolic doctrine. And that's the foundational doctrine that they received and that they taught. And remember Paul to the Galatians said, if anybody comes, if it's an angel from heaven who comes and teaches you something different than the gospel that we gave to you, let him be eternally condemned because he's lying. The doctrine of the apostles that they received from Christ is the doctrine of salvation that we are to hear. And Mark records as well that along with that preaching uh, to demonstrate the authenticity of their message and the source of their message, they had the authority to do what Christ did to authenticate his message. The authority here to cast out demons. Matthew adds in his gospel in chapter 10, verse 1, and to heal every disease and every affliction. See, the very things that Jesus did, to preach, to cast out demons, and to heal, that's what the apostles did. That's what they were to do. That's what these 12 men were being called to do. And then finally, in verse 16, he names them. We won't spend much time on this at all. Simon Peter, you know. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Mark adds here the nickname given to them by Jesus, the Sons of Thunder. Mark's the only one that mentions that. Now these three are likely mentioned first and mentioned together, Peter and James and John, because they are viewed as Jesus' inner circle of disciples. They are the ones who will be taken with Jesus up to the Mount of Transfiguration. We might also note an interesting point that James and John, the brothers, James is the first one who will die As a martyr for Christ. And John is the last of the apostles to die. And the one not to die a martyr's death. So Peter and James and John. Then there's Peter's brother, Andrew. Then there's Philip from Bethsaida. Same town as Peter and Andrew. It's often noticed in the Gospels by scholars and Bible readers who are paying attention. That he, Philip, is often seen bringing others to Jesus. Then there's Bartholomew. If you're reading John's gospel, his name there is Nathaniel. We've mentioned that people sometimes had uh, different names that they would use or different uh, Jewish name and a Greek name. Uh, It's he who questioned, remember, regarding Jesus whether anything good can come out of Nazareth. Matthew, we saw him recently and talked a bit about Matthew or Levi, as he is known. Remember when Jesus called him away from his his lucrative, if unsavory, business as a tax collector. Then we have Thomas, known to the world as Doubting Thomas. That's unfortunate. Um, He also should be remembered by his faith-filled profession at the end of that episode when he said, My Lord and my God, recognizing Christ. James, the son of Alphaeus, or James the Younger, he's sometimes known as... A Thaddeus, who's also referred to in other places as Judas, not Iscariot. Simon the Zealot, interesting. He, Well, he had been apparently a zealot at some point. A zealot was one who, who was known for their, their hatred of the foreign rulers over the Jewish people. One of the interesting things is to see that you have Simon the Zealot as part of this group who would have hated everything to do with the the Romans and the Roman government. And then you have Matthew, who was a Jew who worked for the Roman government. See, Jesus calls these unlikely people and puts them together. And then finally, we have Judas Iscariot, who you all know, turned traitor and sold Jesus into the hand of his enemies. These men are brought together. You know, perhaps the most amazing and the most instructive thing to note here is that Jesus chose these men to be the foundation of the church. This is not the lineup you would pick if you were doing it. It's not the lineup I would pick. These are the ones that Jesus chose to be the foundation for the church, which he said he would build and that the gates of hell wouldn't be able to defeat it. 12 as a book title says, 12 ordinary men. Some of which are listed here and not talked about anywhere else. Almost all of which we know all of whom we know very little about. But they were by God's plan The foundation of the church that has stood for over 2,000 years, because it's not really about them. It is about Christ who taught them, Christ who poured himself into them, and who eventually poured the Holy Spirit into them. It's interesting to think of, of the parallel between this and the incarnation. The birth of Jesus was very unlikely. We often talk about it at Christmas how the circumstances around Jesus' birth is not something that we would make up. If we were making up our own religion, we would say, how would the king of heaven come to earth in order to save men? We would not come up with a census and a man and his betrothed who's with child having to come down to Bethlehem and and having to have their baby in a manger. We wouldn't come, come up with that. It's very unlikely. It's the same thing here. As Jesus picks his team, assembles his team that is going to go out after Jesus is, is gone and change the world, turn the world upside down, as the book of Acts says, this is not the group you would put together. None of them came from the religious establishment. An interesting note. They're fishermen a tax collector, a zealot, as I mentioned. Normal men. Men who had little or nothing in common other than the authoritative call of Christ for them first to follow me and then to be with me and to be sent out from me to be my witnesses in the world. It's amazing to see what God can do with little to work with. Of course, for someone who created the universe with nothing to work with, except his own power and his own word, it's not so amazing. But for us it is to think of these men and to see what they did. And it's comforting to see that, that so much has been and may be accomplished by God through people that we may know nothing about. If their names weren't recorded here and in all four of the Gospels, we wouldn't know anything about them. But we know what they did as Christ used them as the foundation for the church that we are a part of today. That's Jesus and his apostles, the foundation of the church. Again, with Jesus as the cornerstone. And to that, let us say amen. Father, we thank you for reminding us of these things. We thank you for, for seeing how Jesus dealt with people, how he ministered to them, how he loved them, how he healed them. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to, to seek to emulate our Lord in this, that we would seek to do good to those even when it's inconvenient for us. We've seen Jesus and the demons, that he, with a word, has control over them and can call them out. That they must recognize him and they must worship him. And we thank you, Lord, for the, the news here of Jesus calling these men. And as we consider what he did with them, Lord, we can consider what you can do with us. We pray, Lord, that you would work through us that we would be your witnesses, and not in a way to the degree, perhaps, that the apostles were, but that in our, in our little circles, in the places where you have set us, Lord, that we could be witnesses to you, that others may hear of you and hear of the wondrous offer of salvation that you have made and the, the redemption that you have secured that is available through faith, through believing in you. We pray that you would help us. We pray that you continue to build your church uh, through the message of the apostles, through the, the doctrine of the apostles. And we pray all of these things for the sake and the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.